0: You can subscribe at Substack and get early access to these shows by way of TruthJihad.com. Just click on the subscribe at Substack button. Welcome to Truth Jihad Radio, the all-out struggle for truth, specifically the biggest truths that aren't being told properly in the corporate-controlled mainstream And we talk about everything from current events to historical revisionism. And our history certainly needs a lot of revising. Here in the United States, in particular, we have two momentous historic events, uh, the JFK assassination and 9-11 that may be somewhat related that sent our country on the wrong path. Maybe the COVID-19 thing is another such event. But in any case, let's get those earlier two right And here to help me get them right, or at least fill in some of the gray areas with some plausible interpretations of what really went down, is Laurent Gouyenneau. He's the author of a number of great books, including From Yahweh to Zion, which I translated. And his latest is called The Unspoken Kennedy Truth. And I would say that Laurent picks up ably where Michael Collins Piper left off and offers a very plausible interpretation of the Kennedy murders of the 1960s, relates them to a larger scenario in terms of the power struggles and games going on in the United States and globally. So let's talk about it. Hey, welcome, Laurent. How are you?
1: Hello, Kevin. I'm fine. Thank you. I'm very happy to to uh, have this uh, this chance to talk to you. Well, we're
0: it's a good time. We're in the run-up to the 20th anniversary of 9/11, and you've done Mm -hmm. important work on that topic as well. And so maybe we can start by talking about your book on the Kennedys, and then move on to look at how it's uh, significant for 9/11 in light of this 20th anniversary. Fine, okay. Uh, So the the Kennedy assassination has been uh, a huge festering wound in the heart of America ever since it happened, and it certainly changed my life when I was uh, 15, I believe, when I saw Mark Lane speaking in, at the University of Wisconsin, Milwaukee, I think it was in 1974, showing the Zapruder film and discussing its significance. I uh, pretty much that changed my life because until then I just hadn't realized there was that big of a problem in terms of the way my society was organized. So ever since then, um, I've kind of had my eyes somewhat open at least, and that's probably a, a big reason I'm doing what I do now. So, so Laurent, uh, would you agree that the assassination of John F. Kennedy and then a few years later, his brother Robert was a, a turning point in American history?
1: Oh, yes, I, I agree. Of course, I think it's the, uh, it's like the Genesis, you know, like the, the original sin or something, something really changed completely. Um, America at that time, I I believe it it was. I believe it was a coup, an invisible coup that uh, most Americans did not realize, but their country was completely transformed uh, in the way that um, the Zionist um, power structure kind of took over uh, through um, Lyndon Johnson. Of course, uh, if, we, if we're looking for the, you know, the original scene or the kind of the starting point, we, we should have to go back uh, further into World War II. But definitely, uh, you know, America under the Kennedy and America under Lyndon Johnson, you know, were two completely different things. And, uh, you know, Lyndon Johnson, uh, under Lyndon Johnson, I, uh, America became uh, almost psychotic, you know, this is the time when the, the drug culture uh, started. You know, it's kind of. Uh, I, of course, I was not in America at that time. I'm just kind of looking back at as a with a historian's uh, eyes. But it seems to me that uh, something uh, transformed America in, in 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 her very soul. You know, some kind of uh, some kind of um, uh, psychological. Um, sickness uh, started and the youth the american youth at that time became completely disoriented you know disillusioned and uh, it i think people who have lived through the, the kennedy era remember that this was a time of great hope great enthusiasm great belief in the in the greatness of america of course there was a lot of illusion in in that uh, faith but uh, uh, it's hard to It's really uh, amazing to see how, you know, within a few years, the American youth kind of fell into a a culture of nihilism, you know, through the rock and roll uh, culture, the drug culture, um, and, of course, the Vietnam War, which uh, kind of uh, was, uh, you know, ate up America's soul in some way. I agree. And, you know, you've just
0: said that it was primarily the Zionists transforming America on November 22nd, 1963. And you make a pretty Mm -hmm. good case for that in your work. I, When I look at it, I I see it a little bit more broadly and somewhat more nebulously. And it seems to me that uh, you've you've written on the psychopathic tendencies of Zionism. And Mm -hmm. I think the psychopathic uh, tendencies... Uh, in other areas as well, including the fallout from World War II among U.S. Uh, militarists is also relevant to this. Um, and again, I, if I were going to blame a group for this and so many other things, I wouldn't so much put the Zionists at the very top. I would say it's the psychopaths. I wrote that Twilight of the Psychopaths essay, arguing that the real war was between the psychopaths and everybody else. And not just psychopaths in general, but those who are basically the high IQ psychopaths who work well with other psychopaths are the people that we always have problems with, regardless of which group they're in, which nation they work for, which ethnicity they're loyal to, which mafia family they're in. Uh, it's it's like you know the the good news bad news joke. You know, the third grade teacher says, you know, little Johnny is a psychopath. But at least he works well with others. Well, that's actually bad news because the one who, who doesn't work well with others will be a serial killer and kill maybe a hundred people before he gets caught. But the one who works well with others will kill millions in wars and so on. So anyway, uh, you make a, you've written a great arg- uh, article on psychopathy in relation to Zionism and a kind of, uh, a, a tribal psychopathy endemic to uh, an element, a uh, central, very central element of the Jewish community. And I uh-huh. agree with that but I, I think that uh, the James Douglas interpretation of the Kennedy assassinations is also relevant. That is that there was a psychopathy left over from the hideous war crimes and so on of world war two. And the generation that fought those that fought that war and experienced those crimes um, kind of became many of them who were not born psychopaths became sociopaths who then would report to and take orders from psychopaths. And, that's why in the 1950s, the United States policy, as Daniel Ellsberg has revealed, was to essentially kill just about everybody in Russia and China the second any conflict broke out, and that had very little to do with Zionism. So anyway, I'm just uh, throwing out that possibility that your analysis is picks up one very important thread, but it's maybe not the only thread here.
1: Sure. Of course not. It's not the only thread. It's um, Yeah, of course. But uh, still, um, you know, if you go back to World War II, um there is um it's possible to argue that zionism was very much uh pushing for world war 2 so world war II itself can be seen as uh as a Zionist uh, war and uh, and a Zionist victory in uh, 1945 and then uh, you know the foundation of uh, of the of Israel and so on so there is um, still if you go back to world war 2 you can uh, argue that uh, Roosevelt uh, was pushed into uh, you know uh, into making uh, Churchill and Roosevelt actually both of them were very much under the influence of uh, Zionist Jews, and um, <clears throat> the more I, I did, the more I explored the you know the Kennedy story, and uh, and uh, went back. Actually, one kind of a new step for me was to kind of really study the life of the of the patriarch, you know, Joe Kennedy, the father of John and Robert, and and uh, I realized this is actually the an essential part of the story because Joe Kennedy was uh, ambassador, you know, in London during, uh, during the 1938, 1939. And then he resigned because he was strongly opposed to uh, America entering the war. And he kind of believed and, you know, believed that Roosevelt was also... Uh, anyway, he resigned in opposition to Roosevelt's uh, secret uh, plan to enter the war. And, uh, you know, if you study, uh, John Kennedy, I realize, is very, very much the son of Joe Kennedy. He was a peacemaker, which means an appeaser. You know, it's the same word, it's the same meaning. You know, Joe Kennedy did everything possible to avoid World War II and, var- and was very much aware that uh, the Jews were pushing for World War II. For, I mean, to transform a European war into a world war, you know, pushing Churchill, pushing, uh, pushing Roosevelt into it. So you know, even if you go back to the Second World War, uh, you know there is a strong Zionist element in that episode of America's story. That's true, uh,
0: and the, the threat, yeah, that so, Zionist threat, runs way back. As you show in from Yahweh to Zion, you trace it all the way back, of, course, sort of yeah. to the yeah, uh, origins. Sure. Yeah. So let, let's talk a little bit about the uh, interpretation in your book, "The Unspoken Kennedy Truth," which is it's uh, very. Uh, Thi- you know, it's a little thin volume physically, but you're using mm-hmm. a kind of a small typeface. So you've actually got a, a I forget, I don't know what the v- word count is exactly, but it's a substantial book and you do a really good job. Actually, I think it's a better readable introduction to this interpretation than anything Michael pa- Collins Piper did, including his book Final du- Judgment. So congratulations on that. Um, Thank you. Where, where's the, where's a place for people to start if they're completely unfamiliar with this? And, you know, the average American probably, if you told them that John F. Kennedy was assassinated largely uh, due to the uh, plans from David Ben-Gurion and, and the state of Israel, they would react uh, quite uh, – in. in a sh- they would be shocked or they would call it a terrible anti-Semitic conspiracy theory. So what, what's the uh, first kind of straightforward evidence that you would use to convince such a person to take you seriously?
1: Well recently I realized maybe the, the best uh, way to look at the Kennedy assassination is uh, to realize the obvious you know truth that the purpose of killing John Kennedy was not just to get rid of John Kennedy the purpose was to put Lyndon Johnson in power I mean that's very obvious right why would anybody kill John Kennedy I mean for the obvious purpose of putting John uh, Lyndon Johnson in uh, in the White House in a, in a command. So one way, I think there are different ways to, to approach the problem, but I, I realized maybe this is uh, the clearest way to study who was really Lyndon Johnson and what happened under Lyndon Johnson. And uh, it's, uh, it's funny to see that uh, even recently, you know, there are sometimes some uh, articles in uh, RX or uh, other Israeli newspapers claiming that Lyndon Johnson was just the greatest president the greatest American president for israel, I mean you, you find I, I uh, illustrated uh, my uh, uh, my chapter lbj israel 's best friend by uh, by a, uh, an article from Arex that said Lyndon Johnson Israel has had no better friend and uh, that's a, that's undisputable you know that's uh, mainstream um, You know, uh, history. Lyndon Johnson, you know, completely transformed the relationship between the between the United States and uh, and Israel in a way that Americans did not see at that time, but in a way that is very easy to see today. And of course, one of the one of the most uh, uh, dramatic illustration of uh, uh, Johnson's close relationship to uh, the Israeli deep state, I would say, is uh, the USS Liberty story, where um, you see Lyndon Johnson uh, not only authorizing the False flag attack of Israel on the USS Liberty with the purpose of uh, sinking the ship and sinking the ship and uh, exterminating the crew and blaming it on the on the on Egypt in order to give J- Johnson a pretext to uh, join the war on the side of Israel, uh, which could have led to a world war because Egypt was allied to uh, the USSR. So Lyndon Johnson not only authorized this. Um, Operation, but actually recalled the the planes that flew from the the sixth fleet, not uh, so far away, uh, that were coming to the rescue of the USS Liberty. Uh, we have the testimony of uh, Admiral Geis. Well, it's an indirect testimony, but it's uh, it's it's uh, very clearly um, explained in the latest uh, film on the, the USS Liberty. I think it's called. Uh, uh, sacrificing Liberty just came out a few months ago and uh, Admiral Guides testified that Lyndon Johnson on the phone told him to recall his planes and he, he said, I don't remember the, the exact word, but he said, I want the, I want this damn ship in the bottom of the sea. So you know, this story is ab- absolutely incredible and not so many people are aware of it, but this is a US president uh, committing high treason and ordering, um, sacrificing, you know, uh, American uh, soldiers. They were not even soldiers, actually. They were mostly engineers and technicians because this was a spy ship, an armed uh, spy ship. So, you know, this is who Lyndon Johnson was. He was a cyan. You know, he was a Sayan, I mean, uh, an Israeli agent. And if you study his old career, you see he was financed by Abraham Feinberg from 1948. So he was Israel's man. I think that's quite easy to show, you know, from before the time. It's easy to show before he became president. And it's even easier to show that during his presidency, you know, uh, American uh, support of Israel kind of uh, took a completely new uh, dimension. You know, of course uh, there, there was already some kind of special relationship between the u s the United States and Israel, but it reached a completely new level under Lyndon Johnson so if you think about it like this it's then you suddenly realize, well, yes, this was an Israeli coup the The purpose of uh, killing John Kennedy was to get rid of John Kennedy in order to um, to install Lyndon Johnson. In uh, in power and Lyndon Johnson was basically uh, the man chosen by uh, by Israel to to transform America in a pro-Israel way, to transform America into a a kind of a a kind of bodyguard for Israel in some some way.
0: And that, that yeah, that analysis works whether or not you accept the arguments that Johnson himself was involved in the JFK assassination or even the mastermind of it. And there is a a ongoing debate about that with several books making that case. I had Joan Mellon on the show arguing against that interpretation. She's written books on Johnson and on the Liberty incident. And interestingly enough, she was quite uh, dismissive of the arguments uh, for Johnson's complicity in the JFK assassination and certainly for arguments for his directing it. But, she was very open to your thesis yeah, that I, Israel uh, was behind oh. it and so on. So
1: that, I, th- I thought that was kind of interesting. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Uh, what you say is true. It works, you know, if you looking at, uh, Uh, The argument that Israel, you know, uh, whoever killed Kennedy did it to put Israel to put Johnson in power works whether or not uh, Johnson was involved directly or not. But of course, I think there is a strong, uh, strong case uh, to be made that Johnson was, if not the mastermind, at least uh, very deeply involved. And I think that has been demonstrated by a few authors now. Right. Well, knowing his
0: personality and his love of power and his dedication to becoming president one way or another, uh obviously yeah. he would have been involved if he thought he could get away with it, so whether or not he actually was <laughs> is almost secondary to that because once he was in power, he was not going to be opening up that can of worms and um so so you yeah.
1: yeah uh i think one 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 basic argument is uh for me is uh uh nobody would have. Uh, organized the killing of John Kennedy without the foreknowledge that Johnson would cover up the whole thing. I mean, you know, it was, it was unthinkable to, to do such thing, uh, without, you know, the certainty that the, the, the whole investigation would be covered up, you know, so whoever killed John Kennedy knew in advance that Lyndon Johnson on the very day, you know, on, on November 22nd already, would would start working to, to block any genuine investigation. And that's exactly what Lyndon Johnson did from the very first day.
0: And you offer an interesting interpretation of the belief that uh, Kennedy was killed in order to blame it on Cuba and Russia and perhaps launch a U.S. invasion of Cuba and maybe even start World War III with Russia, there were people in the Joint Chiefs uh, who had wanted a preemptive U.S. World War III, preemptive in the sense that if it occurred in the early 60s, they knew that the U.S. could completely annihilate Russia, and it would probably never reemerge as even a civilized society for many generations, whereas the U.S. would only lose, as Dr. Strangelove put it, uh, maybe 20 million people tops. So since they thought such a war was inevitable. They wanted to fight it while it would still have that outcome. And to that end, they had pressured Kennedy uh, to go to war during the Bay of Pigs incident. And of course, that led to his uh, turn towards peace that James Douglas has built his theory around. That is that that Kennedy had become a raving peacenik and the hardline uh, warriors needed him gone so they could get into Vietnam and uh, otherwise pursue their, their Cold War. Uh, but your interpretation of Setting up Oswald, you know, sheep dipping Oswald as a communist and uh, Soviet and uh, a Cuban sympathizer and using him as the fall guy uh, was that that would then allow uh, people like uh, Earl Warren on the Warren Commission to uh, be open to Johnson's argument that don't open up this kind of words, co- cover it up, make sure that Oswald acted alone because if we dig into this, uh, we're going to start World War three and the planet's going to blow up. So, so you see this as they never intended to actually go to war with Cuba or Russia at all, that that was engineered so specifically so they could shut down the investigation by going, uh, using this argument that World War three will uh, come if we have an honest investigation and, and use it against people like, uh, the liberal Earl Warren.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, actually, uh, I came to this conclusion, and then after I realized it's not my interpretation because <laughs> one author had made it has made it before, and I was not aware. It's uh, John Newman in uh, in actually uh, a new uh, chapter of his book Oswald and the CIA. He calls it uh, he calls his theory World War Three virus, and that's exactly how, how you explained it. So there might have been, of course, some Pentagon uh, hoax that uh, were hoping that uh, John Kennedy's assassination would trigger World War III, uh, either before before Kennedy was assassinated. I mean, it, it, it might have been a very complicated operation where some Pentagon hoax were drawn into the plot, hoping this was a pre- this would be a pretext to invade uh, Cuba. But I I, uh, I think the Newman theory. It really makes sense, because when you study Lyndon Johnson's behavior from the very first day, he used that argument over and over again. He used it when he called uh, the Dallas police to tell them to stop investigating. He used it when he called uh, different people to ask them to to join the Warren Commission. He said, you know, we have to stop all these rumors about uh, the communists being involved. Otherwise, we're going to start World War III, and uh, 40 million Americans will will be dead in one hour. This is a phrase he repeated over and over again. So it's very clear that he used uh, the, th- the 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 threat, you know, of uh, World War III as a way to shut down investigations. And I think, of course, I wasn't there, but I can imagine that many Americans. Learning, you know, from November 22nd, learning that Oswald was a communist, a pro-Castro-communist, uh, many Americans feared at that point that uh, this would trigger a world war. And uh, they must have felt kind of relieved when they heard, oh, no, finally, Oswald was just a lone nut. And the prob- many Americans probably did not really believe it, you know, but they were happy to to believe it in some way because, or at least they they felt if they were being lied to by the U.S. Gov- government, it was for their own good. It was just to, to avoid starting a world war. So, yes, let's pretend, uh, let's pretend that the communist uh, or, or Castro was not involved in the plot. That's better, you know, and let's continue and just pretend, uh, you know, Oswald was a lone nut. I imagine that many people kind of push themselves to believe in the lone nut theory, Knowing that if they didn't you know uh there was this danger of World War three so I think this was a very intelligent uh but in fact quite simple huh it's not so difficult to explain you know it takes a couple of minutes, and I think it it really puts a lot of things different things into place. I think it really makes sense, especially. Uh, it it helps us to understand Lyndon Johnson's uh, behavior. And of course, those like uh, James Douglas, you mentioned, and uh, I I would be happy to say a word about James Douglas, because as I say in the the introduction of my book, I really love this book. You know, it, it actually... You know, you, you said you started to be interested in uh, the Kennedy story in 1974, but actually I became, I started to learn about it from uh, James Douglas' book in 2000, uh, when was that? 2010 or 11 or something like this. So I love this book. It's really a great book, a wonderful portrayal of, of John Kennedy as a peacemaker. And, um, but he takes this line that Johnson was somehow not part of the plot, and he should be credited for having at least, you know, uh, prevented the the purpose of the of those who assassinated Kennedy, the purpose to start World War III. So of course he he did not go after them, but. He prevented World War III. I, I don't think that's the good explanation. I think uh, the one that uh, John uh, Newman brought, brought up is, uh, is uh, much uh, more uh, plausible.
0: I agree. I don't think Johnson should be remembered as the president who stopped World War III. I think he's the president who almost started World War III with the Liberty exactly. Incident when he launched those nuclear bombers for Egypt, And the only reason they got called back was because the Liberty crewmen were able to patch together enough radio stuff and to keep their boat afloat long enough for maybe a Russian sub to see them and for the evidence to get out that Israel had done it. If it had been blamed on Egypt as planned and the U.S. had dropped nuclear bombs on Russian installations in Egypt as planned, then uh, we might not be talking here right now. And so that's what Mm -hmm. we should be remembering Johnson for. Uh, and I agree with you. Newman's analysis is is quite plausible. I haven't actually read Newman yet, but I read your synopsis of his work in your book, The Unspoken yeah. Kennedy Truth, and mm-hmm. uh, it makes a lot of sense. And he points the finger at the most likely suspect for actually, you know, coming up with this approach uh, to neutralize sort of the left wing and the idealists and the pro peace people, the kind of people who would have liked Kennedy the most and been most devastated by his death. Um, by saying, stick to that lone nut theory or else we're going to have World War III. Uh, and who who came up with that? Well, uh, Newman thinks it probably would have been uh, the uh, crazed uh, CIA counterintelligence chief, James Jesus Angleton. And you tend to agree. Oh, yeah. And then you, you fit this into your interpretation by arguing that Angleton was likely an Israeli mole.
1: Yeah, that's another good point of uh, John Newman, yes. And, uh, yeah, I have a whole chapter on uh, Angleton, and uh, it's true. He's, he's another key to understand uh, the Kennedy assassination. And uh, a long time ago already, I noticed that, uh, you know, I, I tried to follow James Douglas and, you know, this mainstream, I would say, mainstream uh, JFK uh, conspiracy theory, which points the finger at the CIA, CIA plus uh, some Pentagon uh, hoax. Huh? But let's call it the CIA theory. And uh, I, I was puzzled by the by the fact that, you know, people who try to point the finger at the CIA, you know, don't find many names. You know, it's very difficult to, to find out who in the CIA kind of could have been the mastermind. Certainly not uh, John McCone, <laughs> whom Kennedy put in charge of the CIA after firing... Uh, Alan Dulles, you know, he was a Kennedy man, so he probably didn't know much about what was going on within the CIA, but anyway when we, we point the finger at the CIA, we, we of course, we have to understand, this cannot be the CIA, this could only be uh, a, a, a special secret department or a special secret cabal within the CIA you know, it doesn't make sense to, to point the finger at John McCone, of course who was heading the CIA at the time, but anyway you know Richard Helms is wasn't one, one name that comes often because he was the only uh, kind of uh, man loyal to Alan Dulles who stayed in the high hierarchy of the CIA and of course he's a very suspicious man and he might have you know might have been resentful to John Kennedy for firing his boss, but you know there's no clear um, Evidence. I, I never, I never saw, you know, in Douglas' book or any any other book, a clear evidence of Richard Helms' uh, uh, direct involvement in the Kennedy assassination.
0: But, 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 but doesn't but, he uh, come, so come in with the Dulles, that, the the argument for Dulles' involvement, which has been made pretty persuasively?
1: Yeah, of course, Dallas was probably aware to some degree. But anyway, uh, studying. Um, uh, uh, James Jesus Angleton uh is uh, everything becomes much clearer because he was definitely uh the according to John, uh, John Newman and many others he was definitely uh the man who the only man who possibly could have orchestrated uh, all the legend around Oswald so he was probably the chief puppet master uh controlling Lee Harvey Oswald, and the point has been well demonstrated by Jefferson Morley in a recent book called The Ghost, The Secret Life of CIA Spymaster James Jesus Angleton. This is definitely the best book on uh, Angleton. There, There are three or four books on Angleton, but this is the most recent one. And this is the only one that really gets into the most bizarre aspect of uh, Angleton's life. There are two aspects of Angleton which are incredibly bizarre. One is that, in fact, he created, he, he headed the counterintelligence service. And within this counterintelligence service, he created a, a, a kind of a CIA within the CIA. You know, nobody knew what he was doing he was looking uh, he's officially he was supposed to be looking for spies within the CIA and he was you know uh, uh, spying on everybody everyone within the CIA and he never could convincingly uh, find one one spy one russian spy you know within the CIA so he was a complete failure as the head of a counterintelligence uh, department and uh, more importantly, James Jesus Angleton was the head of the Israeli, Israel office. So he was the exclusive contact between the CIA and Mossad. And uh, the story that uh, Jefferson Morley uh, say is very, um, um, very impressive. He very impressingly proves that Angleton was basically a pawn of the Mossad. He was a crazy guy. He was really crazy. He was uh, he was um, genuinely <laughs> uh, paranoid, you know. And so he completely trusted his Israeli contact, who were very nice with him. Wait, you know, wait a minute. He's, he's totally you
0: know. paranoid and he trusts his Israeli contact? <laughs> that is crazy. Absolutely.
1: Yeah, that's great, because his paranoia was focused on the communism. And he believed that Israel was the only... Ally in the Middle East, and they could, uh, and because of uh, Israel's uh, population coming from the for, from the USSR, you know, from the Soviet bloc, he believed then, that, and that's what the Israelis, you know, were uh, made him believe. They made him believe that we have so many contact in the USSR, we can tell you everything that's going on over there. So you know, he felt Israel is the key for him to. To know everything that's going on in the in the Soviet Union, and so he and of course the Israelis very, very uh, you know could could understand what kind of guy he was and how to use him. So he uh, probably uh, it, it's, there's still a part of mystery about James uh, James Angleton, you know, uh, and uh, this kind of people can only be uh, always. Uh, mysterious to some degree so it's I'm not absolutely sure he was completely uh, consciously involved in the assassination of John Kennedy I tend to think he was but this is not absolutely certain he may have been used by Mossad you know from the beginning to the end and uh, and then realizing what he had been involved in he participated in the cover-up because you know we have evidence that uh, he he uh, deliberated deliberately misled uh, the different commissions that investigated uh, the JFK assassination. He is also, he appears in the story of Marie Pinchot, um, which the story of Marie Pinchot was a a former lover of John Kennedy, who tried to, uh, you know, find out what happened and was found murdered. And James Jesus Angleton was uh, caught uh, in her apartment after her death looking for her diary. There's all kinds of stories like this uh, you know about Angleton, so he's a mysterious person, but it definitely uh, if you if you really search who in the CIA can be proven to have uh, been preparing the assassination of Kennedy in particular by uh, building up the uh, the oswald um, legend you know the oswald uh, uh, how do you say, um, uh, uh, character, you know, as a, as a pro-communist. This is James the Sangleton. And James the Sangleton is not the CIA. He's uh, some kind of special Mossad, Mossad-controlled CIA within the CIA. This is exactly the point within the CIA where Mossad had the, the, the strongest uh, control. So finally, the CIA trail leads you back to Israel, which is interesting. interesting. And you make the same argument about the organized
0: crime trail. And, of course, organized crime was set up or was designated as the most likely perpetrator of the conspiracy that was found by the House Committee on Assassinations in the 1970s. They actually officially deemed it a conspiracy, which means that the U.S. government officially deems the Kennedy assassination as a conspiracy because that's the most recent investigation. It was 1978, I think. And it ended up uh, pointing the finger at organized crime. And uh, just like with the people who blame the CIA, you argue that the organized crime connections also lead us back to Israel.
1: Well, yeah, of course, the organized crime is kind of a little bit of a joke, you know, because, uh, of course, when I think it was the House Select uh, Committee on Assassination, when they started to reinvestigate, uh, they, the minimum they could, they, they had to come out with was to say, well, you know, there was at least two shooters, so there was, there must have been a conspiracy. And then, you know, what's, what's the, the less harming, uh, conclusion you can have, the less harming, the less harmful conclusion you can have is to say, well, probably the mafia, you know, organized crime was involved, which is ridiculous, you know, because First of all, organized crime doesn't mean anything particular, and of course, everybody understands that whoever wanted to kill Kennedy might have hired uh, snipers from, you know, the mafia, whatever mafia you, you want to choose. You know, maybe, maybe the the killers who with the gun in on Dile Plaza, maybe they were Corsican, maybe they were Sicilian. It doesn't really matter very much, you know, because they were paid uh, uh, operatives. So this conclusion is in itself uh, quite shameful and uh, but still uh, if you follow the trail of the of the organized crime of course you have to you have to study the the case of um, Jack Ruby and everybody knows Jack Ruby but nobody knows that his real name was Jacob Rubinstein and um, and, you know, I found this. And it's funny to look sometimes at the Israeli press because or the Jewish press because uh, they're quite open about all kinds of uh, different aspects which directly incriminates Israel. You know, it's kind of strange, but uh, there is a forward article uh, titled Lee Harvey Oswald's Killer, Jack Ruby, Came from Strong Jewish Background. You know, this is a headline of it, an article which I I put the illustration in my book, and so the, the, the
0: foreword uh, <clears throat> seems to celebrate anybody with a strong Jewish background.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Because the, uh, because Ruby uh, tried to um, was hoping to be to be uh, honored as a hero because he killed you know the man who killed Kennedy. So I, he he was probably led to believe that uh, don't worry, do the job, and we'll make a hero of you and Lyndon Johnson will pardon you. I, I think there is strong uh, evidence that he was really believing that Johnson would pardon him. And then when he realized that Johnson would not do anything, he started to speak very strongly against Johnson. He turned against uh, Johnson. So uh, there's still this vague notion that uh, Jack Ruby killed Lee Harvey Oswald because he was so angry at him for killing John Kennedy, which makes him, uh, you know, which makes him a, a kind of hero. A defender of uh, of Kennedy, which of course is completely absurd. A great American Jewish hero. Life. Yeah, <laughs> He's put him on a poster stand, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, which is of course doesn't make any sense when you when you study who was Jack Ruby. He was a a man deeply involved in the in the underworld of Dallas. He was a Chicago mobster connected to the to the you know the Yiddish connection, as we. May call it or the Jewish mafia in uh, Chicago, and then he moved to Chicago. I think in 1947, I think, and uh, when the when the he was uh, basically uh, under Mick, uh, Mickey Cohen, who was one of the uh, top uh, uh, mafia boss, Jewish mafia boss at the, at the time. So his whole background is directly connected to the Jewish mafia, and this Jewish mafia, through especially Mickey Cohen and others, is also directly connected to the Irgun, because, they, as I explained in in my chapter, based on different books, I would have to find exactly the source, because I like to give credit to those who who did the research. Oh, yes, of course, uh, the best book on Jack Ruby is uh, Cantor, Seth Cantor's book. Uh, there are different editions of his book. Um, Seth Cantor wrote a book about Jack Ruby. He Seth Cantor was a, was a journalist, a reporter in Dallas, and he knew Jack Ruby. He met him uh, just after Kennedy's assassination, and he wrote a very interesting, he made a very interesting and serious investigation into Jack Ruby, and uh, Seth Cantor was Jewish himself, so uh, he, but nevertheless he, he, he clearly showed that Jack Gruby was a man. Uh, his whole life was centered around the Jewish mafia. Of course, Seth Cantor does not get into uh, the connection between this Jewish mafia and Israel. The, to, to make that connection, you have to read other books and articles. And especially one interesting article uh, by a certain rock Rockaway, I forgot his name exactly, um, who wrote an article, interest, an interesting article called "Jewish Gangsters, No Gangsters for Zion, Gangsters for Zion," where he documents, you know, the very strong involvement of the Jewish mafia in the before 1945 uh, as a, as arms smugglers. And uh, fundraisers for Israel, you know. Uh, So uh, this was a period when uh, Jack Ruby was uh, began his career as 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 a gangster. So his boss, Mickey Cohen, was the all time greatest American fundraiser for Israel. Apparently. Uh, Yeah, yeah. Mickey Cohen wrote in his own uh, memoirs. He he doesn't uh, d- deny he he boasts about what he did for Israel, you know, by uh, uh, smuggling arms and uh, making all kind of uh, deals to to right. to arm the uh, the Irgun. He,
0: he went up you know, and down the, the west the coast, coast to all the Jewish communities, uh,
1: squeezing money out of them to send to Israel too. Yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah, exactly, yeah. Right. Some uh, some one one author I think his name is Wien, I Forgot his last his uh, first name. Interesting book, which I got to know through uh, through um, Michael Piper, Michael Piper, Gary Ween. There is a fish in the courtroom. That's the title of his book. And uh, Michael Piper uses his book a lot. And it's a, it's a very interesting book because uh, he was a former uh, detective sergeant for the Los Angeles Police Department. And he knew Mickey Cohen. And he makes the claim that actually Mickey Cohen was involved in, uh, you know, pushing Marilyn Monroe into Kennedy's bed (laughs) Uh, because he specialized into blackmailing, uh, you know, people, uh, you know, through this kind of thing. So Mm -hmm. that's that's, uh, highly plausible. uh, Well, and and now
0: that we're in Los Angeles, let's uh, mention the recently breaking news that the parole board has cleared Sirhan Sirhan for release. Now Sirhan Sirhan being the Palestinian patsy who was hypnotized into randomly firing a couple of shots and providing cover for the uh, as usual professional killing of Bobby Kennedy who probably would have mm-hmm. reopened the investigation into what happened to his brother had he succeeded in winning the presidency in 1968 so this is an interesting time to to um, mention the uh the Sirhan Sirhan uh, episode in the, the killing of, of Bobby Kennedy. So maybe you could briefly mention how that fits in to the uh, Mickey Cohen-controlled uh, Los Angeles and Los Angeles Police Department.
1: Oh yes. Okay. Yes, actually, uh, before you ask me what what's what would be the best way to get into uh, the JFK assassination, well, actually, I I start my first chapter is on uh, Robert Kennedy because uh, it's one way to get. To to one entry into um, John Kennedy's assassination is to look at Robert's Kennedy assassination because of course uh, there is a, an easy argument to make that uh, the reason why Bobby Kennedy had to be stopped before reaching the White House is that because he was going to reopen the investigation. I mean that's uh, that's the obvious common sense, and we know he was. Uh, um, willing to reopen the investigation this has been shown by by David Talbot in his book uh, Brothers uh, so uh, yes yeah, the, the, the case of Bobby Kennedy is, uh, is very interesting because there you have of course uh, an assassin who happens to be a Palestinian uh, man a Palestinian anti-Israel man who from the first day that he was uh, arrested on uh, June the fifth or the sixth, 1968, um, was said to be to have been to have acted because of his uh, hatred of Israel, and he could not stand that Bobby had said somewhere in a synagogue that he was willing to to uh, sell 50 uh, 50, um, military planes to Israel. And so the story goes that uh, Siran Siran uh, killed Robert Kennedy because he hated Israel and because Bobby Kennedy was a friend of Israel. (laughs) And uh, you find all kinds of uh, Aretz articles saying Bobby Kennedy was indeed a friend of Israel. He loved Israel which is an absolute lie, you know? I mean, Bobby Kennedy was the son of Joe Kennedy, first of all. (laughs) So, uh, just like John Kennedy. Um, If you study uh, the career of Robert Kennedy as Attorney General, you can very quickly understand he was no friend of Israel at all. He tried actually to destroy Israel's um, the Israeli lobby. He tried to force... Uh, the American Zionist organization to register as foreign agent, which would have forced, uh, which would have limited, you know, the the power of Israel to control American foreign policy. I mean, from the very beginning of uh, of, uh, John Kennedy's campaign, which was, uh, he he was the campaign manager of his brother, Bobby was the campaign manager of John's uh, campaign. Uh, From that time, uh there are quite a few stories showing that john was really really upset at the constant uh, attempt of the, Isra- of the of the um, you know the israelis to to control and to to control american foreign policy you know there are stories uh, about uh, john kennedy you know being upset at uh, abraham feinberg uh, telling him well you know uh, we can help you in your campaign if you let us control your foreign policy once you're president. And so John and Robert together were determined to change, you know, uh, the system so that could, this could not happen anymore. And actually, uh, recently I read a good argument saying that in 1964, John Kennedy would probably not have needed Jewish money. He did in 1960. He took the money. You know he met Abraham Feinberg and he took the money five hundred thousand dollars I think the uh, story goes but in nineteen sixty four he probably would have been reelected without Jewish money, and that would have been a you know very uh, a big problem for israel so anyway, if we study of course Bobby kennedy's assassination we 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 have reasons to wonder. If Iran, Iran was indeed hypnotized and uh, <clears throat> manipulated in one way or another, who would have had interest to, you know, to to um, create this kind of story where Bobby Kennedy was assassinated by uh, uh, an anti-Zionist Palestinian, you know? And of course, uh, there's a who, who would want to blame a Palestinian?
0: To... <laughs> Question <laughs> yeah, answers exactly. itself,
1: of course. Exactly. Yeah. So that's an interesting entry uh, also, yes, into the Kennedy story. I think one, one uh, you know, I, I'm not, uh, I, I relied on many other books, you know, and especially, as you mentioned, um, uh, Michael Collins Piper. And actually, I dedicated my book to Michael Collins Piper, who died in 2015. Uh, I had a very, very brief uh, email exchange with him, but I always regretted I, I didn't, you know, have more chance to communicate with him. So um, what, what was I going to say?
0: Well, you know, this might um, be a good time to, to uh, you know, since we only have maybe eight minutes left, uh, to okay. jump to the, the big motive being Israel's existential attachment to its nuclear program and John Kennedy's yeah. determination to shut it down. And then we can maybe, since we're coming up on the 20th anniversary of 9-11, mention any possible Israeli existential uh, commitment to a new Pearl Harbor that would hijack the American military to try to regime change seven countries in five years, as the General Clark uh, neocon source yeah, yeah. told him, uh, and how 9-11, like the JFK assassination, might have been viewed as something uh, necessary uh, at an existential level for
1: Israel. Yeah, sure. Yeah, uh, well, yeah. This is um, you know the 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 main motive for assassinating Kennedy uh, was uh, really explored by Michael Collins Piper uh, based on books that had come out uh, not long before. Uh, and especially the first one to, to bring out the subject was, I think, uh, Seymour Hersch, uh, The Samson Option. Uh, and then there were other more, uh, more research books coming out later, which showed that there was a, a kind of a, a struggle between Kennedy and Ben-Gurion over the Dimona Project. This became known in the 1990s. I forgot exactly which year the, which year Hirsch uh, Book came out, The Samson Ocean, must have been uh, early 1990s, I think. And uh, based on that, Piper, you know, understood that in fact that was the very reason why Kennedy was uh, assassinated. And there's all kinds of evidence of this connection. One uh, one strong argument is that, uh, you know, Kennedy sent so the struggle started in 1961. I think there was a first meeting between John Kennedy and David Ben Gurion. I forgot where it was. It was in Europe somewhere. And uh, from that time, I found the, the the report of the conversation of the of the discussion between Ben Gurion and Kennedy. It's very very interesting because Ben Gurion and I quote it I quote it in my book. Uh, ben Gurion tried to <laughs> tried to uh, tell Kennedy, well, you know, this Limana project is just for, uh, we're experimenting because, you know, our big problem in Israel is, is water. So we're trying to find a way to to use uh, seawater and to desalt it to make it, uh, you know, uh, fresh water. And Kennedy did not buy into that at all. He didn't even respond to it. He came back right away to the, to the question of armament. And so it's very interesting to see how Ben-Gurion tried to, to cheat Kennedy to lie to him, or more uh, plausibly to, to invite him to pretend he believes in this uh, absurd story. But Kennedy never believed it. And uh, again and again and again, he pushed Begin de to, to uh, authorize uh, inspection of Dimona. Anyway, I don't need to summarize the whole story. It's now very well, uh, very well known by anybody who's seriously uh, interested in the Kennedy story. So um, the last letter that Kennedy sent to Ben Gurion in 1963, I think it was early November 1963, or maybe a little bit before. No, maybe that must have been uh, um, yeah, I think it was early November. He sent uh, Ben Gurion one last letter, and, and that very day Ben Gurion uh, resigned for no no very clear reason, for personal reasons, actually, you know for mysterious reasons. He resigned in order not to receive Kennedy's letter. Yeah, I'm sorry, that, that was in early 1963? Um, was it? Um, I think uh, it was. Uh, no, I think it was in, maybe in September 1963, the last uh, the oh, okay. last uh, letter of John Kennedy. Okay. Uh, I would have to check. Maybe you're right. Uh, you know, I have to... I have to. I don't memorize all this kind of uh, right, dates. Right, for, but, but basically, in, in the run-up to the Kennedy assassination, Ben Gurion yeah. resigned. Exactly, um, yeah. so the, which was very, very strange. And uh, and uh, so the you know, uh, and this is actually uh, the argument is very well summarized in one speech by uh, 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 by Gaddafi, You know, who who probably read Michael Piper's book. And um, said publicly that uh, uh, Ben Gurion resigned in order to to kind of uh, to kind of go underground in a way, you know, to kind of organize to how to to deal with Kennedy in a different way. You know, he uh, he went underground in some way, and that's that can be compared actually to where was. Benjamin Netanyahu on September 11, 2001. He was not in power, so where was he? Well, he might have been, you know, doing the same thing as Ben Gurion was doing in November nineteen
0: sixty three. Yeah, let's, uh, let's quickly mention that. We have we have about two minutes left. Uh, so if oh. Ben Gurion thought that uh, nuclear weapons would be absolutely essential to the security of the coming greater Israel in back in he the did, early sixties, um, the neoconservatives and Netanyahu might have thought. That their plan for a clean break and totally changing the equation by redrawing the Middle East, uh, thanks to a new Pearl Harbor that would draw in the U.S. would be equally existentially important for Israel, uh, in 2001.
1: Exactly. Yeah, exactly. I think one way to understand the psychology of Israel, the collective, collective psychology of Israel, which we, which mean the collective psychology of the Israeli leadership, huh? Uh, which, which was best embodied by David Ben-Gurion or uh, Netanyahu or this kind of people is to, to understand they have uh, they have uh, a kind of fear, existential fear of disappearing, of being exterminated, and therefore their only uh, solution, the only solution they see to avoid extermination is to dominate the world. Because you know, in Jewish mentality, they have enemies everywhere, the whole world is the enemy of the jewish people that's their that's their vision therefore the only way to 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 avoid being exterminated is to control the whole world and uh, one funny illustration of this is that uh, ben gurion in 1962 uh, begged kennedy to uh, you know to to let him uh, have the uh, the uh, nuclear weapon you know otherwise his country will disappear but at the very same year, in 1962, he made this famous prophecy in the magazine Look. He said in 20 years, we, Jerusalem will be the center of the world, you know, will be the center of the new United Nations. So how can you at, at the same time fear for the, the existence of your small newborn country? and at the same time uh, have this vision that in 20 years, your small country will be the center of the world. Well,
0: parent- paranoid <laughs> sometimes do suffer from delusions of grandeur.
1: Yeah, exactly. That's, a, that's a really a psychological uh, pattern, which, uh, psych- uh, yeah, a clinical uh, psychological and pattern. Of cour- and, of course, you've traced
0: that psychological pattern back 3,000 years or more in, from Yahweh to Zion. But we don't have time to get into that because we're pretty much at the end of our allotted span here. Uh, so mm-hmm. all that's left to say is thank you so much, Lauren Guyenau, and congratulations on this great new book, The Unspoken Kennedy Truth. Uh, I highly recommend it, especially for if anybody hasn't yet read Michael Collins Piper. Start out by reading Lauren Guyenau's The Unspoken Kennedy Truth. It's a very clear, well-written synopsis. So congratulations. Uh, keep up the great work and look forward to talking again.
1: Thank you very much, Kevin. Thank
0: you. Okay, take care. Bye, bye bye. Bye.